In this podcast, we return to Daniel chapter 9. Here we consider the 77s and specifically the messianic implications. As we look at all the prophetic aspects of the passage, we see the majority has been fulfilled literally, so we know that the last section will be fulfilled in the same way. This section should be one that encourages us in our security in Christ and motivates us to remain busy for Him. Welcome to a series on the book of Daniel. This podcast is presented by Sefer Audio Productions in conjunction with Foothill Bible Church of Lincoln, California. These messages are presented as part of the Adult Sunday School program. Your speaker is Pastor Jeff Cragen. Now let's step into the classroom as the session is about to begin. It's important to remember just how much the 70 weeks of Daniel are tied to the Messianic hope. After all, the 69th week of Daniel, and there's a little bit of the debate on the exact timing, but I tend to lean towards the general view that says the 69th week of Daniel ends with the revealing of the Messiah. That would be, it ends with Christ coming into Jerusalem. And then the actual trial and crucifixion occurs after the end of the 69th week. And so he's cut off after it ends. It ends at the triumphal entry. Now, I'm not going to quibble over a week one way or the other. And then when does the 70th week, at the end of the 70th week, what happens? He returns. Right? Because at the end of the 70th week, that's when the tribulation ends and the millennial kingdom starts. So what we see is him cut off in the 69th week and then returns to restore the nation at the end of the 70th week. So the whole thing culminates in the first and second coming of Christ at the 69th and the 70th week. And so the church, of course, exists between those two weeks. So it's the 69th week ends, and the 70th week starts between the two is the church age, which has now been at least 2,000 years. But the hope is for the 70th week, well, it's for the end of the 70th week, with the return of the Messiah, Zechariah says it in 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. So, meanwhile, some of the Jews, the religious Jews, are looking for the rebuilding of the temple. And this is the story. After Jerusalem, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, Psalms 42, was sacked again in the year 70 of the Common Era. New winds later began to blow in Rome. According to one storyteller who also told us the Roman Emperor issued an order that the Jews should rebuild the Bishamakadosh, the Holy Temple, in Jerusalem. Great joy was among the Jews, and many who were living abroad decided to return to the land of Israel to participate in the rebuilding of the Holy Temple. At that time, there were living two wealthy and generous brothers, Papas 
and Lulinius, and they set up tables with money on the entire road between Antachi and Akko, and provided food and water and other help for all the Jews who were returning to the land of Israel from the north. Antachi was the capital of Syria, and Akko was in the north, but the Jews had terrible enemies who were always ready to do harm to them. Those were the Kutham, the Samaritans, who decided to put a stop to the Jewish venture. They went to the Roman king and said to him, Your Majesty will be making a big mistake if you allow the Jews to rebuild their temple, for they will surely take the opportunity to fortify the walls of Jerusalem at the same time and will be in a position to rise up and revolt against the ruler of Rome. Rome will then lose much income from them through the loss of the head tax and other taxes. The king immediately regretted his order to the Jews and asked the Kuthan what they would advise to enable him to withdraw his order without losing face. Very simple, they said. The king only need to order that he wants the Jews to set up a temple in a different place, not where it stood previously, or to make it either smaller or larger than before. The Jews will surely not want to do this, so the king's edict will be naturally left unfulfilled. And the king was pleased with the suggestion and decided to follow their advice. The Jews were gathered together in the valley of Beth Ramon to discuss the plan the very important details of the rebuilding of the Holy Temple. In the middle of their earnest discussion, the order arrived from the king that the sanctuary in the new temple must be five cubits so that it will be larger and more beautiful than the previous one. A huge cry went up from the Jews. They knew that it was obviously the trick of the king to nullify his first order, knowing that the law of the Torah forbids any change in the size of the sanctuary. Just as a side note, when Solomon built David's temple, because really even though it's called Solomon's, it was David's. The temple itself was the exact same size as the tabernacle had been. It was higher, but other than that, it was the exact same size. The whole glories of the structure was tied more to the surrounding courtyard and everything else outside. But the temple itself was still this small, tiny structure because under the law it could not be built any bigger than it was originally designed. And that's specifically what they're referring to here. Their great hopes were dashed to the ground. Their anger towards the false Roman ruler increased by the minute and voices called for an uprising against Rome. The situation became very critical. Now the sages knew what a dangerous situation such a revolt would lead to and they tried to calm down the agitated assembly. In desperation they turned for help to Rabbi Yehusha ben Chahanah, a very learned sage and a very wise scholar. They begged him, go out and speak to the assembly. Try and calm them and soften their better mood. So when Rabbi Yehoshu stepped forward, all the eyes turned upon him, and a breathless silence filled the air as the people waited to hear him speak. I'll tell you a parable, he began. A mighty lion caught a lamb and wanted to devour it. A bone is stuck in its throat, and he called out, Wherefore, who will remove this bone from my throat and will receive a big royal reward? So the start jumped eagerly forward, stuck its long beak in the throat of the lion, and pulled out the bone, and the stork demanded the promised reward. <laughs> what chutzpah! What insolence! shouted the lion. It's a reward you still want? Is it not enough you had your head in the mouth of a lion and came out alive? Away with you before I reduce you to a bag of bones and you've had your reward. 
You see, my friends, Rabbi Yahusha continued, the Almighty sent us into exile, into the mouth of a lion, so we must be glad to be alive. When the Almighty finds the right time, he will help us rebuild our holy temple without the help of the wild beast amongst whom we now live. Amen called up the Jews in unison and quietly went their way, realizing the time had not yet come for the restoration of the Beis Hamakadosh. But their faith was unshaken, and that at the time of the third Beis Hamakadosh would surely come, and come it will, any day, with the coming of the Messiah. And so that's from the book, Waiting from the Messiah, and that's, like I say, that's what the religious are still doing. They know that when he comes, the temple is going to be rebuilt. Unfortunately, the temple is going to be rebuilt before he comes, during the tribulation period. And the millennial temple is not necessarily the remains of the restored tribulational temple. It very likely is another temple. So we've had, what, three so far. This will be the fourth, and there may be the fifth. But they're still waiting. And they're getting rocks from Indiana on their mind. <laughs> so, I want to start with a little bit of a summary of what we covered last week since we barely got into the lesson last time. And I'm going to re-quote Arnold Gabeline here. The prophetic message Gabriel brought from the throne of God to Daniel is perhaps the most important not only in the book of Daniel but in the whole Bible. The clear understanding of it is indispensable to every reader of God's word who wants to know God's purposes concerning the future. In the few verses which contain the words of Gabriel, events relating to the Jewish future history are predicted. The return of the Jews from Babylonian captivity, the rebuilding of the city in the time of distress, the coming of Christ in humiliation, his death, the destruction of the temple, and the city by the Romans, the desolations and wars which are to follow, all these are pre-written in this great prophecy. The final end of the time of the Gentiles, the great eventful week of seven years, is revealed in the last verse. And I know I keep reiterating this, but it's so important that we keep remembering this. Again, especially since, bizarrely enough, it's the minority view, is the first 69 weeks were fulfilled literally down to the Messiah being presented in the triumphal entry. And it's all about God and Israel. All right. Why would the 70th week any, be any different? And the answer is, it wouldn't be. And clearly, I don't know how anybody can think these things have been fulfilled. Yes, we see a foreshadowing of it. No question with Antiochus Epiphanes and the destruction of the temple and the abomination there. Absolutely, it's a foreshadowing. Although Daniel prophesies that event as well, right? But none of the restoration, none of the glory, none of all of those promises have come to pass yet. So obviously that wasn't the fulfillment of the 70th week of Daniel of the time of Jacob's trouble of all of this. It can't be because that requires immediately following it the restoration of the nation. And somehow I don't think the state of Israel meets those qualifications. In 1940s? Yeah, right. Still, still 1900 years later. Yeah. So... 
you cannot be consistent with scripture, period, and come up with these other views. I don't care how well they're explained, they're not consistent with scripture and what's happened up to that point. Again, the message that we take from this is, first, since most of the prophecy, really, of scripture, what, 80% maybe, has already been fulfilled, literally, then I think it's probably safe to assume the other 20% probably will be also. Second thing, and this is really important these days, it seems, no matter how bad the things get, God's going to restore his people in the end. He's going to bring peace and justice. He's going to make, remake the world in righteousness and perfection the way he promised. So, worst case scenario, we die and go be with him. Best case scenario is he comes in and interferes sooner than later. Both of those sound okay to me. Now, granted, getting to the, get to go home with him can get pretty messy. And sadly, it has a lot lately. But the important thing, and this, by the way, even for those who don't agree with this prophetic interpretation, but the important thing is that out of all this, we are to live for him and be who he's called us to be in the middle of all of this. We live in a pagan society. We, and Daniel is a perfect example of just how involved you can be in that society and live for God. After all, he floated to the top. Fortunately, it doesn't prove, by the way, politicians can serve God. It just proves God can put people in offices if he chooses to. <clears throat> oh, sorry. So... Daniel, and remember, had been reading Jeremiah and about the desolation of Jerusalem. And by the way, he took all this stuff literally because what was he doing? He was praying that God would let him know when the 70 years was going to end that the people could start going back and the city could be restored. What wasn't expected, I wouldn't mind praying some of those prayers would get interrupted in the middle of the answer, was he got interrupted in the middle with an answer from an angel. Hmm. Oh, well. And so that brings us to the 70 weeks. Boyce explains them this way. 70 weeks of is 490 years, which Gabriel divided into three sub-periods. Seven weeks of years, which is 49 years. 62 weeks of years, that is 433 years. And a final period of one week of years, that is seven years. In one way or another, six things are to be fitted into this period according to verse 24. So let me pick up in Daniel 29, starting in back in verse 20, as Daniel was praying. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people Israel, and laying my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was uttering my prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had previously seen in the vision, was sent forth in flight and reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he made me understand by speaking to me and saying, Daniel, I have just come forth to give you understanding. A word went forth as you began your plea, and I have come to tell it, for you are precious, so mark the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city until the measure of the transgression is filled and that of sin complete, 
until iniquity is expiated and eternal righteousness ushered in and prophetic vision ratified and the holy of holies anointed you must know and understand from the issue of the word to restore and rebuild this Jerusalem until the time of the anointed leader is seven weeks and for 62 weeks I will rebuild this square and moat but in a time of distress and after all the, those 62 weeks the anointed one will disappear and vanish the army of a leader who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary but its end will come through a flood desolation is decreed until the end of the war and during one week he will make a firm covenant with many for half a week he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the meal offering and at the corner of the altar will be an appalling abomination until the decreed destruction will be poured out upon the appalling thing so he goes on to describe this whole period of time and we'll see six things here first he describes the finish of transgression and the great transgression which got the people into trouble was apostasy specifically identified with them not keeping the sabbatic years that's why it was 70 years because that was how long the land needed to rest because of them not acknowledging the sabbatic year and the year of jubilee the second item is to put an end to sin and that refers to the daily sins of the people the third is to provide atonement for sin and the fourth is to bring in the messianic kingdom the fifth appears, appears to refer to the completion of all the prophecies of scripture and the sixth and finally the anointing of the most holy now that is possibly the holy place or the holy one so that can refer to either the temple or to christ we can't be totally clear and you can see why there is different flavors to the interpretation of some of this this is why when i, I was saying earlier that the 69th week is understood by some and i think this makes the most sense to me to end with the triumphal entry i.e the presentation of the messiah and then him being cut off occurs between the 69th and 70th week the crucifixion but like i say i'm not going to quibble because we're talking about a week time difference between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion and the resurrection so but you can tie it to the day with his triumphal entry so what we happen is if you break this down the first seventh that is 49 years that encompasses the restoration of jerusalem and that's the immediate answer to Daniel's prayer. So now you know when it's going to happen. They say, Jews are going to return to the city. The city's rebuilt. And while the walls took Nehemiah and the people 52 days to rebuild, it took many years for the complete restoration. So that falls within that first period that we're talking about here. And so the problem becomes there's no clear starting point to the 77th but the 69th week culminates with the coming of messiah that's very clear here and so if you look at history and keep in mind what jewish years 360 days if you look at history and you analyze it what you come up with is there's some 434 years from the restoration of jerusalem to the ministry of messiah and so that also confirms that we're talking about blocks of years all right so 
again, I'm not going to quibble over a few days one way or another, but literally it falls in from the restoration of the city to the coming of the Messiah is, falls exactly within this time frame that's being talked about here. Now, that's really cool because we're talking about a few hundred years before the fact that all of this is spelled out and it fulfilled <laughs> literally. 500 years. Yeah. For an yeah. So, yeah, try getting that right. He was trying. He got it. He got it. Well, God sees it, but yeah. I want you to predict where this church is going to be in 500. This this church. I'd like to see where you're going to predict it's going to be next year. Give me 50 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ryrie says, the 77s begins with a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The commandment of Artaxerxes Longamanius given in 445 BC, Nehemiah 2.5. Earlier, Cyrus had authorized the rebuilding of the temple in 538, 2 Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1, plaza and moat. The public square and moat were rebuilt by the time the first seven weeks, 49 years, were completed. So we've got a process going on in this first thing. So how is it the prophecy hasn't already been fulfilled after 490 years have already passed, right? Because it deals exclusively with God's program for Israel. What happens at the end of the 490 years? You see the focus shifts to the church, right? And now it becomes about God and the church, Christ and the church. So now we've got this gap of 2,000 years plus, which isn't even talked about in Scripture. Right? Why would it be? The focus of this is about Israel. And the peripheral focus is about the time of the Gentiles and when it ends. There's no clock on it. This is why when Christ talks about even these things will come quickly to pass, what he means is once the clock is started, it's going to continue straight through with that last week, with that last seven years. From beginning to end, it ends, the kingdom is established. How long the time is between the two is anybody's bet. And this is the problem with date setting. Or even making, aren't we in the end times? We've talked about this all the time. Yes, and we've been for 2,000 years. What's your point? But aren't things worse than we've ever been? Yeah. Does that mean he's coming sooner? Well, we're one day closer. I'd like to think he's coming sooner. It is a mess worldwide right now. Okay. At some point, he is going to step in and intervene. But the clock doesn't start until... The church is removed. The, the minute the church is removed, the clock starts. Because it's no longer about the church. It now becomes about Israel and the time of the Gentiles again. Right? I don't know why this stuff is so flippant complicated. It's been fulfilled literally for 409 years. Well, it going to be fulfilled literally for the last seven? Eesh. Sorry. Just winds me up. And so while they're in the prophecy, there's apparently no break between the 7th and 8th 7s. In, in the text, there's one found in history between the 69th and the 70th week. Again, quoting Rockerirey, certain important events were to happen after the 62 weeks plus the 7 weeks, or a total of 69 weeks. The crucifixion of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans were the people of the prince who was to come. 
because these events were to occur after the 69 weeks had run their course and before the 70th week began, there must be a space of time between the conclusion of the 69th and the beginning of the 70th. And if there's any time between the two, then how much time doesn't matter, does it? The issue is it either had to continue straight on or you can't worry about how long the gap is if there's a gap. And clearly there is. Because again, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD may be a precursor, but it's not the event because where's the restored nation? So, as I said, it's run some 2,000 plus years. And no matter how one understands it, the 69 weeks, the most important issue was the cutting off of the anointed one. That's the focal point of history. Now we've passed that, we've got a second focal point of history. The return of the anointed one. And so, in prophecy, in addition to Christ's death, we find the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. There appears to be a continuous time of war and suffering for the Jewish people. And this goes on from the time of the cutting off of the Messiah until the last week. This is the age of the Gentiles, the church age. And Israel suffers throughout this entire period. And has been, hasn't it? Whether we're talking about the state of Israel or the Jewish people, it's continued on into modern times. We're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism again. It's a unique form of racism because it's uniquely driven by Satan. I'm not <laughs> saying other forms of racism aren't used by Satan, because they are. But it's a unique form because in his mind, if he can destroy the Jewish people, he has defeated God's program. He's got two problems. He's after the church, but he's after the Jewish people. By the way, presents an interesting question for those that think the church replaces Israel. If the church has replaced Israel and God is done with the Jewish people, why is Satan still going after them? Because they would become irrelevant, wouldn't they? Because God's promises now belong to us. So who cares, right? So reality doesn't support any of this, yes? Well, you look at today, the anti-Semitism, especially going on in the UN against <laughs> Israel. I mean, you're seeing that there's constant hatred of the Jews and uh, even by people of our country, you know, it's just... Even by presidents. But then God puts another president in and counteracts that. One would hope, yeah. That's the evidence. I mean, you can see where the focus is. Yeah, well, and that's, that's the, the point, isn't it? No. Well, the church and Christians are being persecuted and always have been and are still being and that's rising against it. Where's the most vitriol and most attack and the most hostility focus still worldwide? It's against the Jew and it's against Israel. So Satan apparently doesn't believe the church has replaced Israel. I'm not, I'm not an advocate to say the church replaced Israel, but there's a yeah. heck of a lot more Christians dying every year than there are. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a heck, hopefully there's a heck of a lot more Christians around to die. Right, but there's yeah. a lot oh, yeah. of people. Yeah. Killed and butchered. Especially in mo the rest of the world. Here we're facing persecution. Everywhere else it's persecution. Yeah, absolutely. It's coming here. But when you read, of course, that's all hidden, isn't it? That gets hardly any publicity. Hardly any press at all. Yeah. 
It's only recently that, bizarrely enough, which in itself should tell you something, that the UN came out and talked about Christian genocide before this country was willing to acknowledge it, by the way. We had that very visible mountain in the Middle East where the Christians yeah. were in that. It shines some light on that, but that's been yeah. happening all over. Yeah. But what, what gets the most political vitriol and focus is still Israel. Because we know they're trying to bring destruction on the poor Palestinians who are minding their own business, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Such a bully nation, you know, it's got a tiny little surround by those people that's, you know. But we all know David bullied Goliath, poor guy. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, right? But one thing we can say about the contemporary world is, on the whole, we will never let reason interfere with, with our belief systems. Yeah. Don't want reality to get in the way of our positions. So that's the modern world. Anyway, now I've got to figure out how to get back where it was. Oh, so this last week, the 70th week, is described as one of suffering, of war, it's the tribulation period. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. That has not occurred. It's hard to believe, <coughs> as bad as it's been at times, but that hasn't occurred. For one thing, Scripture is very clear. It is a very fixed seven-year period that's worse than the world has ever seen. Okay. As bad as anything's ever been, it's been nothing compared to what's coming. Because by the time that's through, and we talked about this not long ago in the prophecy series, what happens? Two-thirds of Israel is destroyed, but massive destruction on the world as a whole. Not just on Israel. So the ruler, Antichrist, is identified as first, and here it's clear, the 70th week of Daniel, this has not occurred yet, is the making of a treaty bringing about world peace in a world that's hostile to Israel, but three and a half years into that 70th week, he breaks the treaty, ends the sacrifice in the temple, sets up the abomination of desolation, and the suffering and destruction continue to grow until the end. And from elsewhere in scripture, it appears that the major portion of the world's population, along with the major portion of Israel, are gonna perish during that time. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 22, and in those days, note the prophetic past tense, and in those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be, those days will be cut short. If it lasted longer than the seven years, there wouldn't be anybody left. Really would be worldwide total destruction. So I said it's going to be cut short, and that's, and in Daniel, we're told it's seven years, and then it ends. This does not fit the description of what happened in 70 AD. Not this massive kind of destruction. And I had somebody say, well, it felt like that to the Jews at the time as the temple was destroyed. I don't care what it felt like. This is talking about the whole world. Yeah, it may have. We all feel like our own personal disaster is the worst disaster, right? one of the things that's sad about what's going on is that those of us who want to feel miserable about our own situation are hard-pressed to be able to do so because it's like a comparison. What's our problem, right? But what's described as the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, 
none of that has, anything even close to that has happened, has it? So again, you can see why this section of Daniel is so important, because it underlies all the other prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. If we can get a good handle on this, everything else ties right into this. So this is why it's so important. But, and this is the other piece of it that's important, but even here, the prophecy ends what? On a note of hope. Until the end is poured out on the desolator. So even this is going to come to an end. There will be an end to suffering. And what we know from elsewhere is it ends with the coming and the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom. And Israel with the Messiah ruling, and maybe David is vice regent, huh? will become the center of world government. And for a thousand years, there will be peace, real peace. It'll be enforced, but there will be peace, there will be prosperity. The world will be, from a human perspective, what God had intended it to be. Not necessarily from a spiritual perspective, right? Because everybody that enters the millennial kingdom may be believers, but by the end of the thousand years, uh-uh. But from a human perspective, this will be the perfect utopia we'd always been looking for. Oh, the only problem, downside, of course, being that we'll be a dictatorship and God will be dictating how we're to live. But aside from that ugliness, it will be the perfect, you know, that's the human mentality, right? Try living under Satan's rule, and that can only last for seven years because at the end there wouldn't be anybody left with him running the show. A thousand years of peace under God and people still want to rebel. But for Israel it's a message of hope, isn't it? A restoration of the kingdom. And that kingdom will be eternal. Yeah, there's an uprising at the end of the millennium that lasts about five minutes and then that's over with and then we have the new heaven and the new earth and a restored Israel and a restored creation. So there's a lot of ugliness in here, but we know how the story ends. Matthew 25, 31 to 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered in all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so what happens? Those who have turned to him through the tribulation period, and there are significant numbers from what we can see, huge numbers are saved, they're going to enter the millennial kingdom. And the rest are going to go to judgment right there. And, by the way, this passage also becomes an, an argument and helps us understand that there's no way to know when the rapture and the tribulation beginning will occur. It's only God who's dealing with Israel starts up with the clock, right? And that the time factors can be taken literally. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us when to expect the Christ coming for us, we are told to live in expectation of his coming for us. Those are two different things, aren't they? 
to live in expectation is to influence how we live our lives for him, right? Because we know we're going to go to be with him whether he comes for us or we go to him. So knowing that, we are to live in expectation that we can be with him at any time and live accordingly. Now, how do you think people would actually live if they know he was showing up July 7th, 2035? Oh, well, we, it's 1999. Yeah. <laughs> We've got plenty of time. You know. Hey, no, it's like people say, I can always accept him before my death as the bus hits him when they step off the curb. There's a reason he doesn't tell us because he knows how people are. We're to live in expectations. Now, I'll grant you this. We need to be realistic on ourselves, right? It's been over 2,000 years. Yeah, we're to live in expectation that he's going to come at any time. That lacks experiential reality. We can only do that in, in faith and dependency on the Holy Spirit, right? Because let's face it, do I really functionally, out of my own whatever, believe he's going to return in the next five minutes when he hasn't in the last 2,000 years? Hey, I'm just being honest. From a practical standpoint, probably not. So how do we live accordingly? Independence and the Holy Spirit to help us function and live in a way that anticipates his coming, but more importantly, that's active for him, right? The disciples lived in expectation of his coming back at any minute. They'd seen him leave. They'd been to the tomb and saw him afterwards, right? And so when you read the writings of Paul and others, Paul saw him too, right? They were all expecting him to return within his lifetime. And that was a much easier expectation to hold when you'd seen him, when you'd seen the ascension, when you'd seen the resurrection, when he talked to you. That was an easier thing to believe, wasn't it? Yes? Some people say, well, when will a rapture happen? I, I look at it like when we least expect it. Yeah, and then just to think, because we're supposed to expect it, but it's going to happen unexpectedly. Actually, I think the way Scripture puts it, though, is it's not supposed to be unexpected for us. It's supposed to be unexpected for those who are not looking for him. That is, those who are not his, right? For them, he comes as a thief in the night. In Roosevelt, we expect them to come during the day because that's when he's going to be in Because they're not, yes. I had a teacher that liked to explain to For those that are watching, it's like when you see the Christmas decorations go up in the stores, you know Thanksgiving's right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> when you see the no, end no, times yeah. coming right up, the, rap, the, the rapture's the, the rapture's real soon. Yeah. And we're seeing a lot of stuff, but anyway. Hey, I said it when I was young, way back in the day, that I expected him within my lifetime. And at the same time I said, but if he doesn't show up, it's not going to have any effect on my faith. Right? That's really the answer. And by the way, my lifetime ain't over. <laughs> at least I didn't think it was. So, uh, maybe I missed something. So, he can still come back within my lifetime, right? Uh, I keep saying, wait till we're on the way back from Hawaii this year. Yes? One other thing I want to ask you. Yeah. that you did that I do also is to correlate the 70th week of Daniel with the day of the Lord. There are prophecies that are yes, that, that, that mingle yeah. and some of the other systems that are out there 
don't t as tightly correlate those events. Yeah. Uh, I personally do, and, 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 you, and, and you just do. And I think it actually brings a lot of focus to end times prophecy. When you start to see when God talks about end times, it's all the same thing. There's not a separate event here and there. They do overlap, but it's clear when he's dealing with Israel, there's a clock involved. But as soon as you do that, then when Jesus says, God's going to postpone this day so that all those that he wants saved get yeah. saved, makes a heck of a lot of sense why we have this 2,000 year gap yeah and that's why I'm saying as much as we would like him to come back at any time what's his highest goal that people would be saved right and huge numbers are being people are being saved today as believers what should our biggest concern be for the Lord to come back or for people to be saved for people to be saved because he's going to be coming back but meanwhile we want to see as many people as possible spend eternity with him so on one hand we're to be looking for his coming as a motivation for our walk on the other hand we should be desiring that it holds off as long as possible so that people would be saved since great numbers are being saved. And yes, great numbers are being saved during the tribulation. But trust me, people would a lot rather be saved before they get there than out of it. Yeah. I have two brothers that are unsaved, so I want them to wait. Right. Yeah, exactly. So our focus is different than Israel's, right? Israel's looking for the restoration of the kingdom. We're looking for the kingdom getting bigger. And yes, and that's why the huge gap. Because remember, whether it should have been or not, Israel was not primarily a proselytizing missionary movement. Which is the whole bit, if you read in where we are in Acts in the Wednesday evenings, it's the gospel getting out to what? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the responsibility and the work of the church that the church is uniquely called to. Israel was not called to that kind of an outreach. So we are having tremendous impact. People are being saved all over the world. And that's what we should desire and pray for. And yes, still wouldn't mind if he, because he'll know when to interrupt. And so we don't need to know when all this stuff is going to happen. But we're to live in expectation, Matthew 24. 36 and 42. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That's the message. People spend so much nutty energy who present as Christians, some who may be, of working up the mathematical formulas and when he's coming back and all that. And so people go sell everything and sit on the mountainside and embarrass themselves in God. And the work of the spreading the gospel. Satan loves that. Talk about a distraction. What's his goal for Christians? To keep them ineffectual and defeated. Nothing does that better than spending all your time trying to figure out when he's coming back and spending a lot of energy and buying all your food. I still remember the church up the, up the hill a ways. Uh, was preparing for Y2K about getting all the food and everything together in their guns so if anybody tried to take their food they could buy oh, that's a real Christian approach to the end of the world, right? We don't know. <sighs> One of the most exciting things about Scripture is seeing how it verifies itself and what the implications are for us. That's the other problem with the study prophecy is if we're focusing on all of this stuff and the prophetic 
in the last nut and bolt. That's not really all that practical, is it? We're supposed to take from Scripture what helps us be who we're called to be. See, if most of it's been fulfilled, then we know the rest of it's going to be fulfilled. The proof, yes, the proof of the study of Scripture, and that's what we're supposed to be doing, the study of Scripture as a whole, right? And what it has to say about how we're to live for God, right? Not delving for some secret mysticisms and numerology, Kabbalah. No, the proof is, is the existence of the state of Israel. I'm not saying that the state of Israel is a fulfillment of prophecy. Okay. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm saying its existence is proof that God is in control. And so God has preserved his people. There has been no nation, no people that the world has desired to destroy so thoroughly as that people and that still exists over thousands of years. And it's a little teeny country surrounded by people who like to see it go bye-bye. And it's still there because God's protecting it for his own reasons. And because of that, we know he will restore them. And Gabriel has brought the message. He foretold when the Messiah would be cut off, when Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, and that's what happened. So the day is coming, the temple will be rebuilt. The sacrifice will be restored, and I could do a whole session on why would you want to restore the sacrifice of God? Uh, I don't even want to go there. We can count on this happening. And here's the encouragement to us. If God has kept all his promises up till now, and we know he'll keep his future promises, that means he'll also keep his promises to us. Our faith is grounded in a faithful God. Our faith is grounded in a promise-keeping God. This is why we can be secure, not because we have some mystic faith that we work up this mystic power like the force, but because it's grounded in reality. Just like we know if we jump out of a 22-story building, we're going to hit the ground, barring somebody interfering. And if we pass the third floor, it doesn't hurt you. We know, you know, just as we know that gravity works, we know that God will keep his promises. It's not even an issue. That's where security is. But it's grounded in the fact he always has. And as, you, as soon as you start denying the truth of these things, then how can we trust him for our own faith, right? And the answer is we can't. But we can, so that means we know these things are true. And yes, we have been looking at the craziness of the world around us. And... Uh, Sometimes we come back and look at the craziness in our own lives. But we need to remember that we are children of God. We are a unique position. It doesn't mean we're better than anybody else. It just means we're better off. We are his children. Romans 8, 17. And if children then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's not a big surprise that life isn't easy. We're promised it won't be. But it does mean that we know that God is looking out at what's best for us. He just may define best differently than we do. And for those one has it right. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's like when you, those of you who have parented your kids, right? They had severe disagreements with you. If you really loved me, you'd... 
But you said, no, because I love you, I know what's best for you. I'm the parent. I made that. And as parents, every one of you made mistakes, right? But you still probably knew what was better for your kids than they knew, right? And God doesn't make mistakes. And we throw tantrums. But God, if you really love me, you'd... Right? That's why God gives people two-year-olds. So we know how we behave to him. <laughs> Romans 8, 28, which everybody's memorized by now. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purpose. So, we got to keep in mind, the Lord's the one who knows the path we must walk. You know, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. We have to depend on his light to illuminate the path. But by the way, we only have to take one step at a time. He doesn't show us the whole path. If we did, we'd probably jump off it. Right? All we have to know is the next step. And if we really know that he wants what's best for us, we know that he is building us up for eternity. The deeper our, our relationship with him now, the greater the quality of our relationship with him now, the deeper and greater it will be with him in eternity. If we keep this perspective, then maybe we won't be so overwhelmed by the trials and tribulations. Even the great tribulation only exists for a finite length of time, right? And yes, life can become overwhelming at times, even in dependency in the Lord. And that's when we have to hold on to the truth that how we feel and what is reality aren't the same thing. We feel overwhelmed. Lord, it's flattering that you think I can handle all of this, but you and I obviously don't agree. But he'll give us the strength to deal with this. We have trials, but we have a God who understands because he went through them too. Experientially he understands. He stands with us. John 15, 20 to 21. Remember the word I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He knows what it is to suffer hunger and thirst. He understands because he himself went through these things. And so he can come alongside us and strengthen us. But all the favorite, favorite verse in all scripture, this too will pass on. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're looking at Stephen's message on Wednesday nights to the Sanhedrin, and boy, did that get him in trouble. He obviously had never wanted to be politically correct. And your, your fathers, the ones you brag about so much, right? They killed the prophets. They rebelled against the law of Moses, and you, you snakes in the grass, crucified Christ. What he said, hey, they've always kept it. So... The message of the 77s is God is in control of all the nations. Believe it or not, even North Korea. Both historically, past, present, future. We are loved by a promise-keeping God. He doesn't want to see us struggle, but he's willing to let us do so if it's for his glory and our blessing. Doesn't mean he likes us suffering. God does not punish 
believers. Why is he punishing me? That's a question starts with an invalid premise. God doesn't punish believers. He disciplines his children, but he doesn't punish them. No matter how difficult things become, we have a life in which to build for eternity. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like I say, we're building 501Ks. They're better than 401Ks because they're in heaven and they're insecure. We've got the best retirement plan possible. The medical insurance may not be too great now, but the long-term policy is fantastic. So we have a basis to rejoice in what the Lord has done and will do and is doing in our lives, right? We rejoice in our relationship with him. There are a lot of people going through a lot of stuff right now all over the world, and a lot of those are Christians. They're not exempt. They're not rejoicing in what they're going through. That would be irrational. What they're rejoicing is that God is there for them and will go through it with them. And in many cases, brings people around them to give them his hug, so to speak. But that's not a requirement that they're happy in the circumstances or that we're happy in our circumstances. Instead, we rejoice in what God is doing. So... It isn't enough to look at these teachings and take comfort in the fact that we're cared for. We need to be willing to take the message to others that God is going to judge. And he is. And that's the message that the lost don't want to hear because they want to live the way they want to live. But you never know who the Holy Spirit will touch. We have to be willing to give out the full gospel, which is not politically correct even in a lot of churches today. What's the gospel? People are sinners in need of a savior who suffered on the cross God's wrath, propitiation, that's a word that doesn't get like to be used much anymore, in our place, who shed his blood so that our sins would be paid for, who died, was buried, and resurrected. People don't mind hearing the last three, but they don't want to hear the stuff in front. They want to hear, well, God loves you and wants to be your buddy and come alongside. I'm sorry, I don't find that in Scripture, and people aren't going to be saved by that kind of wishy-washy, watered-down gospel. We have no control of what others do, but we have responsibility over what we're willing to tell people, and we may lose friends or people by telling them the truth, and so what? There's too much at stake. Does that mean we'll be sad that we lost them? Of course. Do we care enough about them to risk losing them with the truth? God will get it to them if they're going to hear it, whether we do or not, but we'll lose the blessing. Whether we're on that threshold and the clock's about to start again, I don't know. All I know is we have time individually left to go out and do what we're supposed to do. Whatever that means, wherever he gives us the opportunity. 
So we need to pray that the Lord will imbue us with the power of the Holy Spirit to give out the gospel because sometimes it's very uncomfortable, isn't it? We are affected by the political correctness around us. We can't help but be. So we're uncomfortable in making people uncomfortable. Isn't it wonderful that we live, especially in California, where people are so committed to feelings? Oh, oh sorry. Uh, <coughs> rather than truth. So, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to give out the gospel and to help each member of the body of Christ to grow in him, to mature as believers, to understand that each one of us, no matter whether a new believer or a believer of many years, has opportunities and is usable to contribute to the building up of his kingdom. Because we are one day closer. Time is running out. <laughs>